0: Thanks, when you if you want to leave your bibles open at that point and open up your handouts to the middle page where you'll see a really detailed outline i prepared earlier thanks for laughing when you see it and uh then we'll get into this fantastic passage that helps us to see what god thinks about emotions and the way emotions lead us to respond rightly to him why don't we pray together father god thanks so much for your word Thank you that through the Apostle Paul, you have outlined this, the inner workings of relationships with one another, but even more so with you. We ask that today you would let your word keep shaping us and changing us, that by your spirit, you would comfort us, where we would see the comfort you've given us and you would challenge us to listen to you at your word and to walk away changed. Amen. there are two words in the english language that have incredible power two words two words that some of us have spoken possibly too often and others of us not often enough they're words that when they're spoken truthfully they bring enormous healing but when spoken flippantly just cause more hurt two words what are they i'm sorry i'm sorry Those words, when spoken honestly, can remove the sting of the greatest hostility. They can kind of dissipate the herd of broken relationships and men friendships, men families, and even men nations. Or they can mean nothing, can they? They can mean just empty words said to give the appearance of civility, that we're happy with others and that we can just move along and do what is politically correct and right. I'm sorry. They're words that we don't like to say. Well, I don't. Not honestly. (laughs) Because every time I say them, it means that I'm carrying the reality that I was wrong. And we hate being wrong. No one gets up each day going, man, I'm looking forward to being wrong today. (laughs) I'm going to walk into the workplace and others. I want people to say to me, hey, man, you know what? You're wrong. I'll be like, oh, this is great. (laughs) No one does that. No one wants to be wrong. No one likes others to point out where we've been wrong. No one likes to be told we're wrong. However, if we go throughout life never recognizing where we're wrong, we will never grow. We'll never change. And we'll isolate ourselves from our family and our friends and our God because there's a reality that all of us know deep down. There are times that we are wrong. with relationships with others and most certainly in our relationship with God. But something that I've noticed about our culture, the way that we live in the world around us, is not only do we not like being wrong we also don't like telling others they're wrong have you noticed that it's something that we pull back from as, as a culture it's kind of as if rebuke has become a four-letter word I, I know it's not got four letters you have to correct me on that later <laughs> don't tell me i'm wrong in that we can chat about that <laughs> but it's like our culture views rebuke as something that oh, we, we shouldn't do we must not ever do we see it as rude to come up to someone and say that they could possibly be wrong, to point out where they may have not had something right, to point out something that is an issue. We're like, oh, no, we would never do that. And who am I to bring something up with someone else? Culturally, we must do what? Remain silent. Right? We don't bring it up with someone else. We just quietly keep it to ourselves. Or maybe we quietly keep it to ourselves and for other people we want to talk to about what the other person did. But the rule is you never talk to the person that actually wronged you, right? You can talk behind their back. You can talk to all these other people. You can freeze them out. You can ice them out. But it would be rude to talk to them. So here we are in a society where we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be told we're wrong. And we don't like to tell others we're wrong. What hope do we have for change? What hope do we have for truth moving forward? Well, as Paul writes this next section of the letter to the Corinthians, we see four things. You might want to write these on your outline. They'll help you fill in the details as we go through. Number one, the importance of being sorry. Number two, worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow, and what those two look like. We'll then see number three, how to give a rebuke, and then number four, how to receive a rebuke. So that's kind of where we're going. So hopefully, you got them time to kind of put them down roughly throughout the outline. There's one kind of caution I need to give us as we enter into this trajectory. This section of a letter is not really a how-to guide on saying sorry. It doesn't give us six steps six steps to being sorry. But what it provides us with is an, a model, an opportunity to watch and learn how the Apostle Paul dealt with a real situation and the importance of dealing with that situation for the church and for us. So the thing that we need to understand in the context of this letter as we get to this point was that everything was not okay between Paul and the Corinthian church. It was not okay. They were having all sorts of disagreements with one another. There were disagreements around immorality, around lawsuits, around different views on marriage. There were disagreements on divorce, on the role of women in the church, the use of gifts, the Lord's Supper, even the resurrection. There's lots of disagreements going on between this church that Paul had started, that he'd brought the news of Jesus to. It was riddled with difficulties. Let's have a listen to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, the letter that he wrote to them earlier. 1 Corinthians 5 1. It's why they reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Here we see the importance of being sorry. There's an issue. We think it's probably this issue behind 2 Corinthians that he's speaking of in this section, but it may not be. It might be one similar. But there's an issue that's been going on where it's really important for the Corinthian church to recognize they need to say sorry. Paul is saying that the Corinthians were out of line. Big time. One of them is living with his stepmother, sleeping with his stepmother. Like, that's wrong. That's, that's not right. And others of the Corinthian church are proud. Look at the freedom we have. Like, well, we, can, we, can, we can sleep with our stepmother because we're free in Christ. This is awesome. They've taken part of the gospel that Paul gave them and applied it wrongly to the realm of relationships, saying we're free from any rules at all. The law has come and we can just, it's now gone because it's fulfilled in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And Paul stands back and says to this church, and you're proud. Ouch, right? They get a rebuke at that point. Notice their response was pride. I don't know if you've noticed this, but often our first response to sin, to rejecting God, is to justify ourselves. It's to end up with a response of Pride. Uh, When someone comes to us and brings up an issue that we have, I know for myself, the first thing I want to do is defend myself. I didn't do that. I want to be proud in the way I respond. Pride, to my knowledge, is the biggest sin I struggle with. Whenever God's word points something out, I kind of find myself wanting to justify why I did it, what went on. Whenever someone else points something out, I do the same thing. I want to say, let me show you why I did that. There was a reason. I did it for a logical reason. And I want to kind of justify myself. Because behind me is this great evil called pride, the desire to say, no, I'm right, and others aren't. Now, it's been that way since the beginning of the world. Remember the Garden of Eden? Adam, God comes to Adam. Adam, you've eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat. What does he say? She made me do it. The woman you put here with me made me eat the fruit. She gave it to me and I ate. What's he doing? It's not my fault, God. It's hers. Actually, it's yours. Because you gave me this woman. What would you put her here for? God moves on to Eve. Eve, what is this you have done? She goes, snake made me do it. And who made the snake? You, God. We do it all the time. It's there from the beginning. There's an exercise that I'd love us to think through as we move through this whole area of being corrected, either by God's word or by others. Whenever someone points something out in me and you, whether they're right or wrong, before we even work out whether they're right or wrong, stop and ask God to keep you from pride. Stop and ask God to say, Lord, help me not to be proud right now, but to listen to what they have to say. Whenever you bring something up with someone else, pray you won't be full of pride as well. And pray they won't either. Pride is behind so much of our sin. But the importance that we need to see here in this section is the importance of being sorry. The Corinthians responded with pride rather than a grief at the wrong that was being done. Did you see that in that verse? The result of the wrong response is here in verse 5. It's hell. Look, 1 Corinthians five five. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Allow your grief at this sin that has gone on to get you to rightly respond to this person and hand him over so he might see the realities of what he's done and be saved rather than just continue in his prideful way and end up in hell on the day of the Lord. No, we want to see him saved. So point it out. There's an importance of saying sorry and recognizing what he has done. Saying sorry not only has dramatic effects between humans, but dramatic effects between us and God. To reject God is to pretend to be God. don't know if you've noticed that. If you say, look, I don't think God is God, then what you are doing is you are taking the place of the ultimate ruler in the world. You're calling the shots in your life, and God won't let that lie go on forever. It's incredibly offensive to God to ignore him, to disregard him and to rebel against him. And if you haven't seen that, if you've been coming along and you've been checking out the things of God and you haven't seen that the reality of our rebellion against God is us acting like God, pretending to be God. And perhaps it's because we're guilty of the same thing. Because we're actually placing ourselves as God and so we don't see it as a problem to do whatever we like. I hope you can see that. All of us have done it. It's been our normal mode of operating since we are all children of Adam but by God's work in us, by His Spirit and His Word, He allows us to come out of that and see the dramatic need to restore relationship between us and God and to do it properly. Look at the outcome of sorrow shown rightly. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. Do you see the importance of being sorry, of sorrow, of grief? One leads to salvation, a godly grief that produces repentance, not being regretted and leading to salvation. The other leads to death. I don't know if you got up this morning thinking through, wow, the way I express my grief and sorrow over things, the way I apologize over things, could actually change my eternal destiny. That's what he's saying, that there is a a type of sorrow that leads to death and a type of sorrow that leads to life, to salvation. Understanding this difference is literally the difference between life and death. This is important for us. It's the importance of being sorry because eternity is at stake when it comes to the way we say sorry. So, what then is the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Point two, if you're following along in the outline you wrote. So then, what's the difference? Well, the passage doesn't say much about worldly sorrow. There's only four words in the passage. Worldly grief produces death. That's it. Worldly grief, worldly sorrow produces death. That's it. That's all we kind of have. What is it? Well, it produces death. That's what we know. But we learn more about this worldly sorrow and grief from its contrast to godly sorrow. Worldly grief produces death, whereas godly grief leads to repentance. So, in other words, worldly grief does not produce repentance. Now, what is repentance? Well, repentance is an idea of that we're going in one direction, trusting in ourselves, thinking I'm the king of the world, that I can set the, the, the kind of the goals, doing whatever I want. And then repentance is literally, it means to do a U turn, to, to turn around, to, to stop going the way I was going and start going a different direction. See, worldly sorrow, worldly grief does not lead to a change of direction. We see it all the time in the world around us. The type of sorrow and grief that doesn't lead to repentance, right? I see it in my kids all the time. They're like, sorry. Like, you go, why did you do that? I don't know, because I was hungry. And then you're like, hey, are you going to do it again? No, I just need to go, right? And it's like, they're not actually sorry at all. Well, they're sorry, but it doesn't lead to any sort of change. Just an eye roll and then a move on, right? And you, you're like, look at me. You need to understand what you did. And they're like, oh, stop talking to me. I've understood. Can't you see that? And then I find that same response in myself and probably you do in yourself as well. How often do things come up? And you're like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. I just want to be polite and then move on. I don't actually want to deal with what happened. I don't really want to change. I just want to kind of, kind of patch over the relationship a little bit so that you're okay. That look, I've acknowledged that what I did kind of hurt you and um, that I'm sorry that it hurt you. And then you move on. You ever said those words? Oh, I'm sorry that it hurt you. Rather than I'm sorry for what actually happened. I'll give you an example of me doing this this week. Uh, I, uh, Sarah asked me, oh, what time would we be back? I just zipped out to do something. I said, yep, I'll be back by 10.30. By actually, she said, uh, will you be back by 10.30? And I said, yes, I will. Out, out the door went. Anyway, about quarter to 11, might have even been 11. I came back and Sarah went, I need you to apologize because you're late. You said you'd be home at 10.30. And I went, no, 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 I, I'm not late. I just told you that I'd be back at the wrong time. Literally, that's what I said. Because <laughs> like the issue, I'm thinking the issue is not that I'm late. It's that I actually didn't think about what you said. I kind of just went, yeah, yeah, as I walked out the door. So I'll apologize for not listening to you, but I'm not late. And Sarah's like, no, I need you to apologize for being late. Like, but I was, uh, the problem was that I just didn't, I didn't tell you the right time to come back. And I kind of stopped for a moment and then went, yeah, okay. And then apologized and said, actually, sorry. I think I've apologized. I'll, I'll see you later. I'm so, Sarah, I'm sorry I was late. There you go. Right there. Worldly sorrow brings death. Why? Because there is no change. And we continue in the direction that we're going and no change happens. We end up feeling grief and sorrow about it, perhaps because we feel hurt and upset. We can, we can get that sorrow kind of coming from someone bringing it up and we can just be angry at the person. And you start then turning aside from the person who brought it up with you. And there is no change, no repentance, no turn from the direction that you are going. Hear the warning, friends. Worldly sorrow leads to death because it does not allow us to recognize the change of direction we need with God. We need to stop trusting in ourselves. We need to trust in the God who has made us and we need to take him at his word and turn from him. Hear the warning, worldly sorrow leads to death. Let me show you some quick examples throughout the Bible of where this exactly happens. So, do you remember Cain in Genesis 4? God says, it's on the screen, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious. He looked despondent. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's the moment. He's got to make a choice. Is he actually going to listen to the rebuke of the true and living God? And present an offering that's acceptable before God? Or is he going to go, no, filled with pride. My way was right. I'll just go, oh, sorry, but keep going in the same direction. Sin is crouching at the door. Look what happens. Verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Worldly grief leads to death. For Cain. For Abel. There are so many... Examples in the biblical story that show exactly the same thing. Esau wanted to repent and take back his foolishness, but it wasn't a real repentance. Saul would not take the advice of the prophet, but tried to kill his predecessor, David. He would not listen to Samuel. Judas didn't accept the warning, but betrayed Jesus. Worldly sorrow says, if you do not like the message, shoot the messenger. Right? If I don't like it, get angry at them. Don't turn around. Be full of pride and say, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I know is right. Stay in opposition. Worldly sorrow solves nothing. But godly sorrow, godly sorrow is very, very different. Godly sorrow is three things. So put down points, one, two, three. Number one, it's real grief and sorrow about your sin. It's not just being grieved that you were caught, but there might be consequences to your actions, but it's it's a recognition that you've offended another party, you've You've grieved someone else and you've rebelled against God. I remember uh, it was about year 10. I was standing outside the principal's office with three other mates. Uh, We'd been caught shooting an air rifle in the the classroom and on the back oval at our field. And I knew we were in a lot of trouble. Uh, I, I felt grief at that point. But I felt this kind of sickening grief in my stomach for the reality that I'm going to need to talk to my parents when I get home and explain why this had happened. For the reality that I'm about to talk to the principal about what went on. And there might be consequences for it. I didn't, for one moment, think about how it affected the teacher who said we were allowed to have the air rifle at school. I didn't think, for one moment, of the, the wrongs that could have happened or how that I, I'd treated my God, who told me to obey the rulers and authorities that had been put in place. There was no sorrow or grief about those things. I was just kind of sorry that I was getting caught. It wasn't until a few days later, when I was home suspended uh the, the the kind of i thought it was my year coordinator who rang me up at home uh, turned out to be um the pastor's wife but i was treating her as my year coordinator and i recognized that i was being really rude to her At the end of the conversation she said oh these are the songs for church on sunday it clicked <laughs> she was the pastor's wife not the year coordinator and i went why was that acceptable to speak to the people at school in a way that is different from someone at church and i realized that at the heart what i was doing was sin I was living two lives where one life was my, my school life that was separate from God and the other life was my home and, and church life that was trying to live for God. And if I was serious, I needed to repent and make that one. God brought godly sorrow because I actually recognized how I had hurt him and hurt others. I went back and apologized to that teacher and, and, and said to him, I'm sorry for the hurt I've caused you to the school. Godly sorrow is real sorrow about what you've done wrong, not just sorrow that you've been caught. If you don't feel that in your life, in your relationship with God, I want to say, ask God to show you your sin. As you read through the scriptures, ask him to show you what has gone on between you and him. The classic example is David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, when he's killed Bathsheba's husband. He's slept with her. He's done all sorts of wrong. He's been caught out by the prophet. Um, and then he's standing there and he recognizes that he's sinned against God. Against you and you only have I sinned. He is sorry for his relationship with God. Real sorrow is, sor- Godly sorrow is sorrow about your sin. But secondly, it doesn't stop there. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. We've already kind of seen that. Godly sorrow has that 180 degree turn. But it's not just continuing in the same direction as something. It's not even just a stopping of that direction. Because you can be going a certain direction, and you're like, okay, I'm going this way, but I'm just going to stop doing that. I'm still facing this direction. It's not that. It's repentance. It's it's, it's a turning, not even a 90 degree turn to go, I'm just going to stand still, but a 180 degree turn back to something else or someone else. It's a complete turnaround from something to someone else. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Even though I did regret it, since I saw the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. Now I rejoice because you were grieved. Sorry, not because you were grieved. But because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a Repentance not to be regretted, and leading to salvation. Do you see that? Paul, as he wrote this letter to them previously, as, as he said those things to the Corinthian churches, probably that 1 Corinthians 5, he's recognized now that this church actually repented. They had a real godly sorrow about what they had done. They turned. Yes, they were grieved. There was this sense of grief and sorrow. Oh, what have we done? But it didn't stop there. It caused them to turn around and stop doing what they were doing. It caused them grief for a little while, but no loss, for they turned back to the true and living God. They turned back to His way, and how great that is. The question for us is, do we let the Word of God change us? Do we let God's Word cause grief in us that allows us to recognize we need to turn back to Him when we have gone wayward? Do we let the Word of God shape our opinion shape what we think about the world and our values and our morals? Do we let the Word of God mold us and direct us in all that we do? You know, as well as I do, there are areas in our lives where God, by His Spirit, just pricks our conscience to say, have you sorted that yet? You know what I've said. My question for us is, will you let sorrow for sin turn you back to repentance through the Word of God and the work of God done by His Spirit? Or will you reject him? Will you push him away? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to repentance. The third thing that godly sorrow is characterized by is to a change of action. Not only a turning back and a turning to our God, but a consistent walk in that direction. A consistent walk to trust the true and living God and take him at his word. Look at how Paul talks about this, the way this played out for the Corinthians. Um, Verse 11 of chapter 7. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. The Corinthian church took the rebuke seriously. They changed. They feared God. They showed themselves to be pure in that matter. Look at verse 13. We rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had. Titus had come and visited. Paul was really nervous. He hadn't heard back from Titus. He's waiting for Titus. He wants to see what had happened in the period between the letters. We rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had, because when Titus finally came back to Paul, his spirit was refreshed by all of you. Look at verse 15. And his affection toward you is even greater, as he remembers what? The obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. The Corinthians changed. They didn't just go, oh, look, I'm sorry it caused you pain, Paul. We're going to keep going that direction. They didn't just go, okay, I'm going to stop kind of being proud of this person having sexual freedom. Um, but they actually, went, no, I'm going to turn to the true and living God and live that out and change in the way that we live. Godly sorrow is real sorrow. It leads to repentance, a turning back to God, and it leads to change. We're actually looking for real change. Now, it doesn't happen like that. It's a slow process of being made more and more like God, like our Father. But it's a change that is happening, and it needs to be evidenced. They did not continue on the same course. Friends, if we are never grieved by our sin. If we never slow down enough to think about the way that we've acted towards God, we won't repent and we'll exhibit just a worldly sorrow that leads to death. But if we do recognize the realities of our sin, if we hear the word of God and and we change, then there is life, forgiveness, joy, hope, now I'm not saying we need to go and confess kind of every single little one of every possible sins we've ever done. Uh, I'm, you know, not, we shouldn't have this thinking of like, oh, what if I've missed one? Quick, I should say the prayer. God, please forgive me for everything that I've done and things that are you know all the little things I might not have known. I have this fear that every day while we're trusting in Christ, there might be some unconfessed sin kind of irking, lurking behind, under the surface. No, but we need to be living a repentant life. A life that does take God seriously at his word, that seeks to put all the things that God brings up right, to live his way. Last week, Paul challenged us to cleanse ourselves. Let me ask you, did God's word cause you any grief last week? As you thought through your life, and whether you were living the pure life that reflected the the reality that you are part of the family of God, that you are one of God's children, did it cause you any grief in areas of your life? Did you do anything about that? Did you let that sit? Did you let God's word mould and shape you? Because the warning that comes next this week in this passage is be very careful that you do not exhibit a sorrow that leads to death, but a godly sorrow that results in repentance and changed action. Did you do something about it? Did you chat to others? Did you talk to our our God? Did you share the struggles of life? I want to encourage you, friends, do take this seriously. Satan wins when we go, oh, it's okay. I don't need to say that to anyone. I can just keep on going. or just kind of stop. I'll be all right. And we don't share it. We don't change. We don't allow God's word by his spirit to shape and mold us. Friends, God knows our sin. We can't hide it from him. The biggest act of rebellion is not that we've committed the sin in the first place. The biggest act of rebellion is that we could have rejected the true and living God. That we could have rejected God's salvation offered to us in his son. God knows we're sinners. But the moment we say, I don't need Jesus' death in my place. I'm right here. I don't need to apologize for that. The moment pride creeps in, that, well, how great a sin that is. Paul just said to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God had made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, we reject the true and living God, but ah, oh, to reject his salvation, the costly death of Jesus in our place, that God the Son became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is an even greater offense, is it not? if you've been brought to your knees by the realisation of your sin before God, if you've thrown your life at the mercy of His Son, then you can be sure you are forgiven. You can be sure your future is secure. And the God who was once your enemy is now not only your friend, but your Father. We need to not remain in grief and sorrow, but recognise that we need to turn back to God, to repent to ask him to help us to change, and then continue in joy because Jesus has died in our place. Now, before we move on, there are two more things we kind of need to look at uh, that we have here modeled before us. The first one, so how do we rebuke, given that Paul does it here? And then secondly, how do we receive a rebuke? And we need to pay attention here to both. As I said, it's not a knockdown manual of five steps to say sorry, four steps to give a rebuke, and three steps to receive one. Well, I'll give you some pointers as we move through. But I want us to note the model of Paul, the way he responds, the way he speaks. See, the first thing we see in how to give a rebuke is that Paul can have great pride in the Corinthians. He can speak positively. They have every spiritual blessing, he says in his first letter to them. He has great joy for them that they are in Christ. He can speak so positively of them and yet rebuke them at the same time. He loves them so he speaks to them even though it's hard to speak to them. So often I find that we are more binary than that. If someone has done something that has hurt us or they're living in some certain way that we don't think is right, we don't look for the positives as well and encourage them in the positives and and kind of help them through the negatives. We just write them off. We're very binary if someone comes to us. If they've done something wrong to us, you know, a friend of mine once said, they're dead to me, right? We need to be careful not to be like that because we need to let Paul's example of how to love these people in relationship, look to the positives, but also be able to speak the truth in love alongside them. So Paul, despite the grief they caused him, despite their sin, had enough love to speak about their sin with them to actually rebuke them i think one of our greatest problems is we don't love one another enough to actually care to actually be in one another's lives enough to to know how we're each doing that's not saying you need to be in the lives of everyone in church but at least some does someone know what you're struggling with do you share the struggles of your life with others do you feel that you could speak into the lives of others? Or have you perhaps isolated yourself so that you know, no one can speak into your life and you can stay clean and don't have to experience any hurt? Not Paul. He cares deeply for this church. He loves them. He's anxious for them. You see, I'm talking like a madman at points. He's, he's caring for this church because they need him and he needs them. Friends, we need each other. Because rebuke comes in the context of relationship. Rebuke comes in the context of relationship. Paul has the relationship with them. Look at verse 2. Accept us. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I've already said that you're in our hearts to live together and die together. How strong a statement of relationship can you get? We live and die together. I'm with you Corinthian church. As you go well, it encourages me. As you fall, I feel, I feel grief. I am with you. We live together. We die together. The Christian life needs long-term relationship. In order to be able to love one another, we actually need to be invested in the lives of one another. We need to think not about being in a church for six months or 12 months, but six years and 12 years. To think, how am I going to grow relationships where people know me and I know them? And again, not everyone needing to know each person in depth, but long enough to actually make sure we can care, make sure we can speak into the lives of one another. We need to stick around. It's so easy to church hop, group hop, friend hop. And sometimes there's real reasons why we need to do that. There's real things that come up and we need to move and and that just has to happen and that's just the way it is. But there should be a sense of grief about that and a sense of I don't want this to keep happening, I'm going to make decisions to get some stability in my Christian life. Because sometimes we can do that church hop, friend hop, group hop just so that we can stay protected, just so that no one else can see into our life and we don't let anyone in. Hear the warning today, friends. Eternity is at stake when it comes to rebuke. When it comes to lovingly and carefully caring for one another and holding out the potential errors that are there, eternity is at stake because they might not realize it. Pride might take over and they'll continue to death. I need you, friends. You need me. We need each other to lovingly stand beside each other. Number one, rebuke comes in the context of relationship. Number two, as we rebuke, we need to rebuke as a fellow sinner. We need to recognize that as we come that we are sinners too. Uh, Paul talks about in other letters that he was the greatest of sinners. And that in fact, he was one who persecuted the church that, that kind of was responsible for killing Christians. As we come to, to lovingly point out the sins in one another, we need to hear Jesus call. Take the log out of your own eye before you pick the speck out of someone else's. We don't come in with that high and mighty attitude. Look, I've got life sorted. You've got these four problems that's so obvious I can see and you need to change them or you're just going to go to hell. See you later. No, we need to recognize that we are sinners. We don't have life sorted. Rebuke as a fellow sinner. Number three, rebuke the issues that matter. Sometimes we can be so nitpicky. Uh, I find this in myself that I want to, want to pick on this particular issue and perhaps it's more an issue of preference than sinfulness. And so we become or can become people that go around and kind of rebuke this and that and look at that issue over there and look at that issue over there when ultimately, oh look, are they really the big issues? Are they really the issues that matter? Are they the issues that will affect eternity? Is this an issue of taking God's word seriously? You know, the whole um, European Reformation uh, came out of um, really the reformers looking at the doctrines that were there around salvation by faith alone, but around these things where people could buy an indulgence, could buy someone out of purgatory or could secure their eternity. Now, the issue for them wasn't the indulgences. The issue was that they'd rejected the Word of God. We need to make sure that in our rebuking, we're with the other person sitting under the Word of God. It's around an issue that God's Word is helping us to see that's important to the way that we live. Rebuke the issues that matter. And fourthly, rebuke requires a risk. For those of you that are risk adverse, that don't like taking risks, that have been hurt throughout life have had relationships that have been broken, rebuke is even harder because you're risking the friendship, the relationship with this person. As you speak to them about what you see and how, how, how you struggle with things as well, there's a, there's a sense in which they might go, well, stuff you. I don't, I don't want you in my life anymore and walk away. And there goes another one. See, that's why I should just be quiet and say nothing. And let people walk to hell. No. Rebuke requires risk. Which requires us to trust God. To trust that his word is good. To trust that our security is not found in the number of friends we have. But in Jesus who died for us. And will spend an eternity with us. We need to speak lovingly and carefully and warmly. But it will require risk. Proverbs 26 verse So Proverbs 27 verse 6 says this, it's a great proverb. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Will you love your friends? Will you love me clearly enough, lovingly enough to actually speak when you see significant wrongs? When you see things that could be taking others or me or you off track? We must rebuke lovingly. Whenever I sweep the dust under the rug, relationships always get worse. When you deal with the issue, the relationship always gets stronger when you talk about it and actually sit through it and work it out and say what needs to be said, recognizing you're in a context of love and care. It always works out better. Now, sometimes the person won't listen to that. There are times that there are issues with it. But it's far better that they see that you love and care than you not say it at all. Uh, we teach a tool as you come through Newish called Situation Behaviour Impact. It's a really good tool to be able to use that with others and even with God. Um, to be able to recognise the way that someone has reacted towards you, you can talk about the situation we're in. Uh, last week when we were at church, behaviour, uh, and, and we chatted over morning tea and you said that that shirt looked like you were wearing pyjamas. There you go. Someone once said that to me, so it's real. <laughs> no, 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 they didn't say it to me. They said it to the senior minister I was working under about me. Uh, and then never actually dealt with it, and I'm not bitter, so. Uh, the shirt you're wearing looks like you're wearing pyjamas. It just, it just made me feel like, I don't know, you didn't hear a word I said that week on that sermon about maturity in Ephesians 4. It, it just felt like you just cared about what I was wearing and what that looked like, and I know you probably didn't mean it, but I wanted to bring it up and just say I think I was really hurt by that. It just is a mature response. Situation, behaviour, impact. It's helpful. So, That's how to give a rebuke. Let's move on to how to receive it quickly. Corinthians provides this model, I think, of how to receive feedback. And you see the Corinthian church doing that, receiving the rebuke in an honest way. They actually hear Paul's words and change. And Titus reports that back. They changed. They listened. Now, there was still more to work on with them, so Paul has to write back to them again. And there's some issues that are still there. But they listened to him. Step number one in receiving a rebuke, listen. Listen. Don't defend, don't let pride creep in. Pride is at the heart of a defence. The Corinthian church were filled with sorrow about what went on. The grief they received came from God, not Paul. It wasn't just that they'd wronged Paul or said something bad to Paul, but they realised they were acting inappropriately towards the true and living God. Listen. Secondly, Look for the truth in what that person is saying. As someone brings stuff to you and talks about how um, there might be an issue in the way that you're living or dressing, maybe there was some truth in my shirt did look like I was in (laughs) pyjamas. Maybe that day I actually needed to think through the way I dressed appropriately and it caused some offence in that congregation at that time. Very rarely have anyone ever brought me an issue that was totally 100% wrong. Usually, there's some bit of truth in there that I need to own as well. There's something that they've picked up on. They might not have got it right, and I can kind of outsmart them with the technicality and move on and pridefully just keep walking the way I was going. Never, I think, can I think of a time that someone was 100% untrue, 100% false. We need to ask, what, what truth is in this? As God's word comes to me and, and says, you know, are you actually living a pure life? Do I go, no, I'm living a pure life? Sweet, all sorted there, and let's not dwell on that anymore. Or do I go, actually, God, are you by your spirit right now prompting me to search my life and go, is there anywhere that I've really got unconfessed sin? Is there some ways that I'm living that I actually need to repent or relationships I need to restore, things that I need to own? Are you looking where you can learn from God's word and learn from what others are saying around God's word, looking for the truth in it and not seeing the rebuke as as harm, but for your good? Do you see how the Corinthian church took it? They didn't regret the grief they went through. They saw that it ended in their salvation, in good. They went, actually, this rebuke, even though it caused grief, is good. Because I'll be spending eternity with Jesus. Because of this, they've helped me to correct. Paul's helped me to see the truth. When someone comes to you, they're not generally coming to you to hassle you and hate on you. They're coming because they, they love you and they care for you, and they want to see you standing firm in Jesus to the end, even if they don't sound like it. Don't attribute motive to them. Don't say, oh, you hate me, so you're bringing this stuff up. Actually, listen. Look for the truth. Number, number three, don't have regrets. <laughs> with, worldly, with godly sorrow, there are no regrets. As the rebuke comes, there's just thankfulness. Thankfulness that God has showed you that you need to turn back to him. If you find yourself constantly coming back to something, some sin that you've dealt with, that you've confessed, that you've tried to put right and that you've been walking away from and not and kind of falling back into, then recognize that's probably Satan just trying to make you doubt your salvation. Say to him, shut up, get lost. This has been dealt with. I've dealt with this with God. And this is sorted. I, I, I've righted this wrong. It, it's dealt with. Jesus has paid it all. For those of us with consciences that are kind of, you're like, oh, I feel like I keep falling in these areas. Remember, it's been paid for at the cross. And you can move forward not having to sit and think by somehow being sorry for all of your life, by experiencing grief all of your life that God is more pleased with you. No, it's to respond with no regrets and say, I'm glad God showed me through this person or through his word that this was how it is. I'm glad God took me through the ringer. And took me, you know, 10 rounds in the ring. So now through all the stupid mistakes I did, this has been pointed out. So now I'm made more like Christ. I'm glad that God has done that. No regrets. No regrets. Well, it's my hope today is we've seen the refreshing nature of repentance, of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. That when people turn from sin, when we listen to the word of God, it, it... it has that refreshing effect in us like it did for Paul in the Corinthian church. When people do turn from sin, when we do listen to the word of God, it is so refreshing, isn't it? Not like pretending I've got life together. <laughs> we all know we don't. But going, oh, God has pointed out the reality of where we are at, where I am at, and helped me to come back to him. We so often think that the impressive Christian is the one who has life altogether who seemingly never sins, they've always got the right answers, the right words, and everything just fits together so neatly. And you're like, that's what it should be like. Friends, that's a lie. That person did exist. He is alive at the Father's right-hand side right now. The one who never sinned is Jesus and Him alone. And for us to think that we are at this point in time should be perfectly like Christ or that someone is perfectly like Christ, that's an issue. We need to get that out of our minds and recognize we are all forgiven sinners. That we sin, that we have broken our relationship with God, but that through Christ, He is restoring us to Christ's likeness. This side of Jesus' return, sin will not be conquered. Doesn't mean we shouldn't aim for it. The perfect Christian face is a facade, it is. What's refreshing is when we share our sin, when we set our minds on the salvation that our Savior has given us, and we run in dependence toward Jesus with a sorrow that results in change and repentance, walking alongside one another with the word open, praying that God will shape and mold one another to be more like Jesus, saying sorry where we need to. What a joy that is. It's my great joy to say, I think that's what we see here at EV. I see lots of that, of people, of you guys sharing honestly with one another. In connect groups, I hear of stories where people actually have the hard words with people. I hear people come up to me and go, oh, I, had to, I got SBI'd the other day. Someone came up to me and said, situation, behavior, impact. But it was great. We talked it through. And like, that's great, isn't it? That's a church that gets the gospel. That gets that God has dealt with our sin in Christ. And we're not trying to hide our sin. We're trying to say, look, it's forgiven. So friends, as we come to this passage today, let's, pretend, let's not pretend to be people who never sin. Let's continue to be ones who confess our sin, to God and to others who walk alongside one another, deeply caring, building relationships, making every effort not to sin and live out the joy, the refreshing joy that our sin is paid for in Christ. And because of that we will live forever with our God and one another. Let's pray. Father God, today we confess that so often we think that We have life sorted. We don't want people to comment on our life. We don't want your word to shape or mould us because we like the way that we are going. But Lord, we know deep down that we need your word. We need one another to point out where we stumble, to stand alongside one another and to recognise the forgiveness we have in your son. This day we ask that you would help us to be people that seek a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation. We ask you would show us areas we need to continually change and not be afraid, but to let you mold and shape us. We ask you would carry us through the grief of our own sin, the grief of others' sin towards us, and have no regrets, but recognize that you are shaping us into the likeness of your Son through them. We ask you give us the boldness and the courage to love others, to stay and build relationships when it's easier to move to speak the truth in love, to know people well enough to be able to comment on, on them caringly and lovingly and for them to be able to comment on our life caringly and lovingly. And we ask you to help us to be people who can receive rebuke from your word, from one another through your word in a way that brings joy and excitement and change. Lord, we long that you would shape us to be more and more like your son, as forgiven sinners longing for the day Jesus comes back and sin is finally dealt with. It's in his name we pray. Amen.